Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Ugh, man, legit, Hannah, my neck actually really does hurt. Like, I hurt my neck last night. Oh. Probably from all of the monogamous sex I have. Ew. Um, <laughs> Wait, just... you cannot start the episode like that. <laughs> <laughs> just so much monogamous. I just love my wife uh, so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> probably going to probably gonna go right at a, an orgy scene now because I love my wife so much. Ew. <laughs> what? I'm just inspired after our last episode on Stephen King that uh, you know, I I've really decided I love my wife so much. Like, <laughs> you know, like you said in the last episode, it gets more suspicious the more you say it. <laughs> I'm like, I always assumed you did love your wife, like most but married now he keeps people. Saying it. Is he trying yeah. to convince us or himself? <laughs> Rebecca, has anyone here heard from Rebecca lately? <laughs> Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. We haven't introduced our show in a really long time. You realize that? We always just go into shit. Doesn't the intro introduce it? The intro, yeah, I guess. I guess. Uh, you're not welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft because we already said that dumb person so you don't you don't get two introductions listen better next time listen better and we don't have to do more of our job <laughs> <laughs> so um i realized that in the last episode i completely forgot to say what biography i read mm-hmm. um which was a major oversight and i apologize but for those who are joining us for part two uh in part one most of my information came from Haunted Heart, The Life and Times of Stephen King by Lisa Rogak. I think that's how you say your last name, All which right. is a very interesting read. Um, but I, I think it's like a good book for people like us who are coming to authors without knowing a ton about their lives already. Because when I was reading the reviews on Goodreads. There was like a small group of people who all hated it and gave it one star with their logic being this is nothing I couldn't have found by reading every single interview that Stephen King has given over his 40 plus year <laughs> career. And I'm like, wait, don't you see then that it's a little bit easier to compile all of that information into one book instead of having to read and listen to a million interviews, but they kind of missed that point. So there's nothing truly original in this book, except for a few interviews with some of Stephen King's like childhood friends. You but know, I still like it. The same logic could be used for being a surgeon uh, if i just read if i just go out and read all the books on being a surgeon i could be a great surgeon too you could you could or you could just go to college where they give you all that shit <laughs> so yeah so critics be damned well i feel like the people who didn't like that book would also not like our show so i hope they're not listening because we are not telling you anything that you couldn't have gotten from three thousand years worth of stalking yeah. stephen king online Guys, if you're listening to our show, you got to realize that we're doing the work that you absolutely could do. The difference is, no, you can't get the great 
comedy styles of, you know, Tyler and Hannah hanging out and Hannah being sarcastic when Tyler makes hilarious jokes. (laughs) Hilarious. Yes. We're here to entertain and inform. So we're not just Wikipedia. We're Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a really apt comparison. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so uh, so Tyler, what are we talking about today that we did not go over last week? So this week we're talking about Stephen King, right? Um, last week we went over his life, we went over uh, his birth to his almost death. Um, He's not almost dead. I hope not. His he almost died. He got hit by a car. Oh, I thought you meant like to the end of his life so far. Oh, I was no. like, I he's mean, only yeah, seventy four. He almost dead for sure. He's slowly dying at this point. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so today we're going to talk more about his stories, talk about his books and like, you know, the stories behind the stories, that whole thing that we promise you at the top of the show and, uh, how they've affected us in our life. Cause I know Hannah has read some of his work and I can't remember if you said you liked his work or not. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> hot takes hannah says hot nah. takes with hannah no um right, so then- it's not that i don't like them i'm just i just don't feel passionately about any of them so mm. i read a few okay. i like the movies a lot more than the books because i i don't i feel like stephen king's um storytelling is very well suited to movies and you know, visual representation, which I think, um, you know, knowing that as a kid he was super into horror movies kind of explains that to me now. I, I can see that in his work, how it panned out. Um, but, like, I'm, there's something about his writing that just does not really hook me. And I, I can't put my finger on it because I know that he's a good writer. And I know that the stories and the ideas are freaking crazy. And, like, the one thing that he's super good at is unique stories like i don't know how his mind comes up with these things so i admire him from that standpoint but there's not like one stephen king book where i'm like oh my god this book changed my life yeah yeah i get that um i am also meh um i've been meh for a long time i've been like forcing myself to like stephen king more than i used to and I'm not joking, by the way. I really did hurt my neck. <laughs> like, not because of all the monogamy in my life. But, like, just I don't know what I did. But it, So if you see me wincing in pain, it's because I'm, like, turning my neck. And I normally can, but today, for some reason, I cannot. Uh, I'm moving, so maybe I just picked up a box the wrong way. Um, That's probably more likely than the monogamy. Than the monogamy getting to me. I've... <laughs> Trust me, monogamy doesn't get to me. I love it. I love monogamy. You love monogamy more than Stephen King loves monogamy. Um, but yeah, so I I've been trying to make myself like Stephen King for a long time because it's that that idea of like he is. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty well regarded as like he's the greatest horror author of our day right like yes there's nobody else better than him no like some would even say he's the greatest horror writer of all time yeah i mean he's up there with like lovecraft and edgar Allan poe and stuff like that i he's written way more than either of those writers too so numbers wise he's number one 
I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about him or all of his stories. I know that he has an expansive um, universe of stories, and I don't know all of them. I've I've tried to read a few of them, but I do see one common theme throughout, and I can either get into that now or at the bottom of the show, whatever you want to do. It's not going to be like a whole sermon or anything, but it's just like... Let's do at the bottom of the show after we've talked about some of his uh, major fiction works. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Because then people will kind of have an introduction. So um, we kind of teased this in the last episode because obviously Carrie was um, Stephen King's first published novel, really his breakthrough novel. Um, And we didn't go into a ton of the background because we wanted to save it for this episode. So just starting out with that one because it is first. Um... You'll remember if you listened to the last episode, at the time, Stephen King was writing short stories for men's, basically, porn magazines. Um, Cavalier was one of the big ones that he contributed to a lot. Um, And then this bet arose with one of his friends who was like, why do you keep writing for porn magazines? Um, And the, the friend basically dared him or bet him that he couldn't write a story from a woman's point of view or for women at all. And Stephen was like, okay, I guess I'll try it out. Um, so thus began Carrie, and um, if if you're not familiar with the story, I mean, you probably are because it's a pretty popular one, but it's about the friendless, bullied high school girl whose abuse continues when she goes home to her ultra-religious mother. Uh, King comes from a long line of Methodists, so he's always said that he listened to a lot of fire and brimstone as a child, so you'll kind of see the religious iconography throughout his stories. Like, it's not yeah. just in Carrie, although that's a pretty <clears throat> blatant one. Um, And King had already been toying with the idea of writing about an outcast with supernatural powers who strikes back at her tormentors. Um, And when he was like coming up with this outcast girl, he thought back to two specific girls from his um, high school days. And they're pretty sad stories. Like we mentioned this in the last episode, too. Like Stephen King met a lot of like weird people and had just kind of weird incidences like you know when he was four and his friend got hit by a train like that kind of stuff yeah pops up throughout his life um and these are a couple other examples so the first girl that he was thinking of um she was the one who apparently like her mom gave the kids one set of clothes at the start of each school year and they had to wear that same set of clothes the entire year the whole year yeah so obviously uh these kids were an easy target for bullies Um, and so King basically watched this girl be mercilessly tormented. Uh, she was always quiet, sat in the back row, tried to keep her head down, but people still picked on her and it got even worse after she went out and bought herself new clothes, which is really sad. It was like the kids didn't want to see her change anything. So they, yeah, she was a scapegoat for them. So like, why would they want her to be better there? She's providing that outlet for them to put all of their insecurities and pains onto her. Yeah. It's not fair and it's cruel and it's evil, but that's the way humans work. That's why we have the term scapegoat. It's why we talked about that in the Aesop uh, or Aesop story. Yep. Uh, So it's like, I I understand why it happened because she thinks, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, be better now that I the one thing that they all pick on me for and it's like no unfortunately you're cursed with the stigma now the be- the only way you can get out from under that is by getting the fuck out of there yeah like that's why there's so many people who graduate high school and they're like I'm getting the fuck out of here I'm, I'm not sticking around 
and it's a smart move for a lot of people because they they know oh it's better like even even if the town itself or where they come from isn't that bad there's still a stigma about it for them yeah and it's hard to reinvent yourself in a small town or a small school like so yeah i can totally sympathize with that and it makes a lot more sense now like the story of carrie knowing that stephen king kind of zeroed in on the fact that like even when she tried to make herself quote unquote better it just got worse because you kind of see that in carrie's transformation like when she goes through the you know ugly quote unquote to pretty girl transformation toward the end like people don't want to see that yeah uh, um, some people don't want to see that some people some people were nice about it but you know uh bullies hate it when good things happen to you yes um and then the second girl that carrie is based on um was also shunned by her classmates this time because um she suffered from seizures which is a really shitty reason to pick on someone not that there's any good reason um and she lived in a trailer near King's house. Uh, her mom at one point hired King to move some furniture because, like we mentioned in the last episode, Stephen King spent a lot of his childhood doing, like, odd jobs, like grave digging, totally normal, yeah. <laughs> but also helping out neighbors with work. Um, so when he went to the trailer, he was, like, horrified by this giant crucifix that towered over the living room. He said before, like, yeah. if it fell on you, it could kill you. It was that big. Yeah. Um, and it had, like, a super scary realistic jesus on it with blood dripping from the hands and feet um and then the girl's mother apparently asked king if he'd been saved and he was like nope and left the house as fast as he could (laughs) so yeah Uh, that one uh when you see especially in the movie version like the whole um they actually have like a giant jesus crucifix in the um original 1970s version of the movie and then there's like the little closet that carrie's mom makes her go in and has all the scary stuff jesus in there yeah super creepy man yeah so um tragically uh do you know what happened to both of these girls tyler i know they both died i know one of them killed herself i believe is the first one Mm -hmm. that killed herself which again i you know makes sense the the people of this town just kept shitting on her and she had no escape. Uh, at least she didn't see an escape. Um, and so, like, what other choice do you give someone when you're just going to bully them into the ground? And even when they try to do better, they still get bullied for trying to do better. And, like, what? Do you, seriously, what do you expect someone to do? If you expect them to take it and just keep living, you're an absolute idiot. Yeah. Yeah. So she unfortunately... Um took her own life and then the other one died from a seizure so <laughs> yeah they were both dead by the time stephen king started writing the novel carrie um yeah. and i think i believe he knew that at the time he started writing too so he was just like kind of haunted by everything that had happened to them and how it turned out in their lives sure which is really sad um so yeah so he had both of those um women that he'd observed to like draw on for inspiration. But one of the things um, that almost led to Carrie not being finished was that he didn't think he could write from a woman's point of view. And that came up uh, in 
within the first scene. So uh, again, for people who haven't read or seen the movies, the first scene takes place in a girl's locker room. And when Stephen King got to the part where the other girls throw tampons at Carrie, who's having her first period and doesn't know what it is, uh, he hit a wall because he couldn't figure out where they would have gotten all those tampons. He was just like, I want them to be throwing a shit ton of tampons at her, but do girls carry around that many tampons? (laughs) Um, No, they don't. So he asked Tabby, his wife, and she said that the tampons in the machines in locker room bathrooms were free. And I don't actually... Like, I... I feel like those machines are in bathrooms now, but I thought they were always empty. So I'm like, okay. But yeah, apparently they know. were better stocked in the 70s. <clears throat> yeah, because it was new technology. It was great. <laughs> new technology. Tampons and pads. <laughs> I didn't say the tampons are new technology. Just the just the things on the wall that give them to you. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he got past that. But still, after he'd written about 15 pages, uh, he gave up and threw the, the manuscript in the trash. Um Because not only was he struggling with the female perspective, but he also knew at that point that the story would be way too long for Cavalier, which was what he was originally trying to um, write it for. And their cap was usually about 3,000 words. And he was like, nope, I can already tell this is not going to be a 3,000 word story. Sure. Um, And and I, you know, I just to, I, I don't know what your next point is, but just the idea of like how he's trying to write from the female perspective and... And he's concerned about it, right? Like, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to do it. That's uh, that's something that I struggle with nowadays. Um, not necessarily with the female perspective, but uh, with other things. So it's it's interesting to see kind of the same dilemma of, like, I want to tell more than just my story. You know, I want to tell someone else's story sort of thing. Yeah. So... Uh, Tabby was really the one who kind of encouraged him on that front because um, she found the pages in the trash. She picked them up and, and took them to Steve and said basically he should keep writing it because she thought the story was good. And then she offered to help him with the all the girly stuff. Sure. Um, do, do you? How do you feel about the idea that, that he's writing a female protagonist from the female perspective? I mean... I don't think, I mean, you can write whatever you want, and I'm glad he wrote Carrie, but I didn't find it particularly realistic or relatable. Yeah. And I'm always surprised when uh, people really identify strongly with that first scene, because I'm like, there's a lot of issues with this scene, and I just can't get past it. I'm like, it's a it's a good scene, because it's kind of ridiculously uh, dramatic, but I'm like, this would never happen in real life. Is the problem with the scene that that would never happen, or is there other stuff wrong with it? Just that it would never happen like that. Yeah. Or I don't don't think it would. And I've consulted with, like, maybe two other women at this point, and they've been like, yeah, that's kind of weird. But if you watch it... Obviously, you're not speaking for all of womandom. I'm not speaking for all of womandom, but... (laughs) But you don't think that that is a, like, at all possible thing to happen. And I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah. What about back in the 70s, though? I don't think, like, biology changes that much back in the 70s. But, like, but like culturally, it's a different time. It's a different place. Yeah. Okay, so my... And uh, the disclaimer for any men who might be triggered by this conversation about periods. <laughs> my issues are, one, if that was her first period, 
which apparently it is, she would not be bleeding that much. Oh, so okay. I take issue with her being like, oh my God, Covered I'm bleeding to death. Yeah, yeah. And my second point is in uh, 14 years of periods, never had it uh, in the shower. Mm, Showers gotcha. generally stop it. So I've got okay. my two little realistic issues with that scene. So I'm like, it just so feels... So just all around, you're like, no, this is not... I'm like, this is supposed to be like your really insightful scene into women and like the things <laughs> we're afraid of. And I'm supposed to be able to relate to that. I'm like, yes, it is shitty that her mom never told her about periods. But also like, why is she screaming and thinking she's going to die? Yeah. It's like, if I got a nosebleed for the first time, I wouldn't automatically assume, oh my god, I'm going to die. Yeah. I mean, I she she's also pretty uh naive. She's pretty traumatized, so. And, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, not to make a gross conversation grosser, not that it's gross, but, like, it can be gross for people. But it'd be like you writing a story about a boy getting his first boner and, like. And thinking he's going to die. And thinking he's going to die. And, like, it's, like yelling at him or something it's like no that's not how it works <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you have some flexibility with horror writing in general right like it doesn't have to be realistic so yeah i give him a pass on that but i'm just in general like reading his other stuff too i've never really thought that Sometimes he falls into that like creepy old man thing from the the seventies and eighties, where it's like every time he describes a woman's body, it's like super gross and sketchy. And I'm it like, is, you know, it is. You could just about not. <laughs> I wrote about this on our Discord when I was when I was reading and I watched the Carrie movies and I was reading it and it's and I had read another book by him that we'll get to at some point, but it's creepy. It's fucking weird how much he describes girls bodies and like he doesn't describe boys bodies that way he doesn't talk about their package their their little <laughs> wiener preparing for adolescence <clears throat> he doesn't talk about you know their thighs and biceps and chests you know like growing into proportions like he doesn't care about the boys bodies almost at all and that's interesting too that you point that out because as I've been reading some of his stuff, he'll talk about like, or like listening to interviews with him about writing, he'll talk about specifically how he tries not to describe people's physical appearances so much because he wants you to be able to see like whoever you imagine the character to be in that sure. person. Sure. But then he like goes way overboard with describing women's boobs. And I'm like, wait a second. You don't Almost, describe faces, but tits yeah. you can talk about for three he paragraphs. He talks about boobs so much. And, and he talks about little girls' boobs more than I've ever read any other author <clears throat> ever. I've literally never read an author that has been like, let me tell you about these three little girls' boobs. <laughs> and yet in one book, he's done it. Yep. So you know, I don't it's, know. it's creepy. It's fucking weird. I, and I don't like it. To be honest, I don't like it. And this is one of the reasons why I'm like, I'm constantly like, yeah, with Stephen King, meh. I get he's supposed to be a good writer, but I don't like the shit that he writes. Not that I don't like horror. I'm fine with horror. There are specific things that he does. And again, there's another one that I'll get to in a little bit because <laughs> there's other stories. Where yeah. I'm just like, bro, that's the most needless thing I've ever read. And I think even with just cutting out like 
those semi-creepy descriptions, like, it would make me like Stephen King a lot more. Because I was trying to, like, I was trying to think about other male authors who I like who write about women sometimes and, like, what the difference is with them. And I kept coming back to it. It seems like when they write about women, they they write about it like they were writing about a male character. It's like they're not focused on the women's tits or, like, her love right. life or something. They're focused on her trying to escape whatever dramatic situation she's in and they don't like do the overbearing her like supple thighs and perky right. breasts or whatever it's like no she's just another character which if you're gonna write those stories fine i don't give a shit i just don't want to read those stories yeah. right and like, that's my point it's like those are not the stories that i like i like the ones where the female character is just you know doing exist. doing human things yeah she was a human she looked like a human woman <laughs> With the body parts that are of human women. <laughs> Maybe not like that cut and dry, but you know. <laughs> Just describe something other than boobs for once, Stephen King. Her ass was great. Yes. Okay, even that would at least be unique for him. <laughs> but anyway, so that being said, I, I think Carrie is a, a good story. Like, it's got a good plot and... uh I rewatched the original movie the other night and I was like, okay, yeah, this is good. Like it's well paced and all that stuff. And I think it does make, you know, good serious points about bullying and abuse and all of that stuff. So good story. Just wish it had fewer tits. Sure. Oh yeah. The movie, especially right. Like, Oh my God. That first scene, um, Talon hadn't seen the original before. So as soon as it started, I was like covering his eyes. I'm like, don't look. And then he's like, wait, these are supposed to be high school girls. Like, how are you showing this much? Yeah. I straight up, I went and looked online to be like, how old was this girl when they did this? They were probably all in their thirties. It was like, she was 25. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, thank God. I mean, they picked someone who does look young, but that just made it creepier. Like I legitimately felt sick. Watch. I'm like, why? (laughs) Are we doing this scene? The UK, uh, something you, about the seventies, man. And and so then I was really concerned because I was I was like I'm gonna watch the first the original and then I'm gonna watch the remake see how it's different see how it's the same, and I was like are they gonna because you know we've gotten kind of worse I guess in a way like I don't think you but, could do that with high schoolers though right and then and then I saw it was I don't know her name Chloe something or other Chloe Grace Moritz sure. Um, <laughs> She's an actual high schooler. And I was like, okay, there's no way they're going to have nudity in this. And they shot it exactly the way that you should shoot it, where it's like, this shows you what's happening without there being full bush. any nudity. There's zero nudity in it. And I'm like, what? how come they couldn't do this 40 fucking years ago? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, what a... What a choice to have full nudity in, like, your first shot of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, full nudity, full on. And it was, and it just kept, like, with all the girls, all the teenage girls, I legitimate, and I don't know if that was the director's, like, if they were trying to be like, hey, look, I want you to feel gross when you're watching this movie because, I don't know, that I want you to feel exposed like Carrie is (laughs) or something like that. They probably have some metaphorical bullshit that a director can come up with. The angle of the camera represents the the human uh, condition or some shit like that. No, it was probably like, we've already got an R rating. 
let's just throw some let's just throw full some, nudity in there some little girl boobs in there huh we're okay with that <laughs> right everyone apparently everyone was though because the movie um which uh you you mentioned sissy spacex or spacex is that how you pronounce yeah, her last name she I starred as carrie it was directed by brian de palma and it was a box office smash. Uh, they produced it for less than $2 million, but it grossed around $30 million just in the mm-hmm. U.S. Yeah. Uh, so despite all of the gratuitous nudity, people loved it. And uh, it really put King on the map in a way that books by themselves can't. Um, yeah. Just be- like we mentioned in the last episode, like Carrie didn't actually sell as well as the publishers help- or hoped originally. Oh, yeah. Um, but when the movie came out, people like flocked to bookstores to buy Carrie and Salem's Lot, which was also out at that point. And then The Shining came out two months later, and they made that his first bestseller because the the moviegoers were just like obsessed with Stephen King from Carrie onward. Yeah, I think because he mentions at some point, like I think I got paid, you know, like twenty five hundred bucks for the movie rights of Carrie. But that's fine. It's paid for itself or something you oh, know, yeah. over the course of Because seriously, the second that that movie came out, he was he was just like constantly putting out work and he became a celebrity for his work. Yeah. Um, so it, he had already had critical success from in in the form of critiques. Right. Like they read Carrie and they loved it. They like people were like sneaking copies to their assistants and stuff like that because people love the story um once the movie came out he was a celebrity mm-hmm. and everything he did was stephen king's blah 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 <laughs> um so i i think it's you know it definitely even if he didn't get paid a shit ton of money for the movie rights to carry it's paid for itself many times over <laughs> so yeah so um and then the next one that I wanted to talk about was The Shining, because um, that was the the first bestseller that he had, um, his third book overall. Have you seen the original The Shining? Or I guess the only Shining? Yeah. Uh, no, there's a couple of Shinings, actually. Um, and is there a remake? Other yes, than Doctor Sleep, I which isn't a remake. Like, no, it's a sequel. Uh, there is a version of The Shining that came out I want to say in early 2000s, maybe late 90s, that was, you're going to get to it, but it was basically Stephen King was like, no, this is how it should be done. Oh, okay. And it was made, and obviously nobody cared about that one. (laughs) Uh, Author's worst nightmare there. Yeah. But okay, so so you're familiar with the storyline then. Um, so The Shining follows a family stay at a haunted hotel as the young son, Danny, is tormented by psychic visions and his father descends into violent madness. Uh, so the story may never have come to be if not for a one night trip that the Kings took uh, while they were living in Colorado. They had moved to Colorado at some point with their their kids. They wanted a change of scenery. Um, and then the night before Halloween of 1974, the Kings left their kids with a babysitter and headed for the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. Uh, before long, uh, Kings like writing horror writer Spidey senses were tingling because they drove past a sign reading road may be closed after October. He was like, Ooh, this is getting spooky out here. Uh, when they got to the remote hotel, they (laughs) learned it was the last day of the season before it closed for the winter. And they were the only guests, which is just like delightful in a giant 
massive hotel. AF. Yeah. So even though they were the only guests, apparently the orchestra serenaded them as they dined in the empty dining room surrounded by like tables with the chairs turned upside down on top of them. But the orchestra was playing their music. Um, And then also adding to the atmosphere, it was apparently very windy and a loose shutter outside uh, banged all night long, like just in spooky giant mansion vibes. Um, So by the time that Stephen and uh, Tabby returned to room 217 that night, he already had his writer wheels churning in his head um, and basically had the entire book mapped out. He'd been already playing with the idea of a story about a kid with ESP or extrasensory perception. uh, And once he saw the hotel, he was like, okay, this is where I'm going to set it. So thus the shining was born. Um, And then some of the evil urges experienced by Jack Torrance, the dad in The Shining, were also based on Stephen King's own feelings. Because one of the things that he's talked about, he's like very transparent with like taboo subjects, which is another one of the things that I think makes his work um, really successful. Because he'll talk about things that normal people won't. And one of those things is like when he became a father, he was really surprised that sometimes he like straight up felt like he hated his kids and was really mad at them. Um, and so he kind of manifested that in Jack Torrance's character. Uh, and some of that came from his mom, Ruth. She was like very superstitious when he was a kid. And one of the things she said was that he could say something three times in a row to prevent it from happening. So for him, writing The Shining was like, if I write about having these evil urges or whatever, I'll never act on them because I'll like, I'll take the hex off of it or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, I do think that psychologically that is a, a really interesting idea of, like, acknowledging the darkness inside of you so that you can... Um, not act on it. Not act on it. Because part of the reason why a lot of people act on it is because they're bottling it up and they're, you know, holding it in. And then it just gets to a point where they don't care if it's taboo. They just need to get it out of them somehow. And then something bad happens. Whatever it is. Either that's cheating on your spouse murdering somebody like whatever it is you you hold things in until they bottle over and so you know i i do think that that is a psychological form of of kind of healthy practice is if you're a writer like use that and write it out yeah <laughs> write out your feelings all like journaling and and diary writing is <laughs> very helpful for teenagers honestly it is and i think people should um kind of acknowledge that more because Stephen King's very right. Like it's totally taboo to express any negative emotion about your children, like not even to your children. But if you're a parent, you're like not supposed to say anything's wrong. So I can imagine that gets very dangerous sometimes if you bottle it up for too long. It's like sometimes you got to admit that, you know, your kids piss you off (laughs) and it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, so uh, Stephen King wrote The Shining in four months, which is annoying, almost as as bad as uh, Lorna McDougal's husband. Lorna McDougal's husband. The uh, the difference is he had already been writing books and he (laughs) wrote, if you gave me four months alone, I could write a whole novel too. Do it. I could. Well, actually, Stephen King probably wasn't alone. He had two kids at that point. Three. He also, this was his job. Are you going to pay my for my <laughs> wages, Hannah? No? 
Listeners, are you going to pay for my wages? I would appreciate it if you would. I would write you a book if you do. In four months. Guys, I'll do it. I'll write you a book in four months. I guarantee you. If someone wants to take me up on that challenge and pay for my <laughs> pay for all of my wages for four months, I will give you a book. I hope um, our fan Bill Gates is listening right now. <laughs> Stephen King, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he whipped out the the shining uh it became a bestseller uh and then of course the stanley kubrick adaptation uh for film stephen king like you alluded to did not like it um one of his main issues was actually the casting of jack nicholson in the uh, main main role there because he felt like jack nicholson was too dark right from the beginning of the story and stephen king in in the book version, he really wanted to emphasize that Jack Torrance was like a normal dude and then like slowly descended into madness. Whereas sure. Jack Nicholson was like an asshole right off the bat. Well, yeah, you see it's more like he's an asshole who's trying to be a good person um, in the movie. Like he's trying to do the right thing or he's trying to help or, or get over the the shitty thing he's already done. Um, and in, in the, the book it's yeah it's he's he's a guy he's just trying to be a good guy and then this place is driving him insane yeah and that's like another theme with um stephen king's book like you said it's he's just a guy like in almost all of his books it's just normal people who weird things happen to and then how they react to those weird circumstances um so it's never like you have this crazy mega hero character or something like that it's always just normal people which i think is another reason that his books are really um popular it's like i guess that makes it more relatable even if i don't personally find them relatable i can at least respect that it's about normal people and not extraordinary unrealistic characters sure yeah because i think nowadays it's it's always very easy to go the superhero route Mm -hmm. right we saw that with mulan (laughs) The, the live action oh like, i didn't see that one because yeah, i like, i didn't want they, to ruin it for myself like the original yeah the original the cartoon is you know some girl goes and joins the military and does her thing and in the in the live action i haven't seen it because my wife told me all about it and i was like oh okay i don't ever have to see this stupid movie <laughs> she's a superhero she's a fucking superhero she has superpowers and then she goes off and does the same thing but it's like you totally took away from the whole you know power of women message that runs through the mulan story like you dumb dumb people <laughs> women can only be powerful tyler if it's supernatural if they can focus their chi and jump from three <laughs> stories up but slow themselves down in the air that's amazing see <laughs> um yeah. and then the last thing that um I thought was interesting about the the movie adaptation of The Shining that was different from the book uh, was they changed small details down to the room number of the hotel. So the room number that they actually stayed in and that was the book version was 217. But, uh-huh. uh, and Tyler, you probably know because we're both from Oregon that uh, the exterior shots were filmed at Timberline Lodge. Timberline uh, Lodge. They yeah. filmed it here in Oregon. Oh my God. Ah. <laughs> uh, and Timberline Lodge has a room 217. And apparently the owners were worried that guests wouldn't book the room after the movie because it would be too spooky. So no. Kubrick changed the room number to 237 in the book 
or in the movie, which in hindsight, I feel like this was a really dumb move on the hotel's part because people yep. love spooky shit and they probably would have yep. booked 217 like crazy. Yeah, the the Stanley Hotel that all this is based off of that's supposedly supposedly actually haunted, they've officially been like, "Hey, we're not doing any more. It's too much. We're, we've had <laughs> we too, have many too people much business come to our hotel." Yeah, like legitimately, they're like, "We're an actual hotel. Come stay in our hotel if you want to come stay at our hotel. Stop showing up for the ghost stuff. We're done with that. We're moving on." It's they been 40 are over years. it. <laughs> So yeah, Timberline lost out on that on that ghost money. (laughs) Although maybe I guess since you brought up the point of Stanley Hotel is fed up with all of the business, like maybe Timberline saved themselves that problem. But yeah, the problem of making too much of making too much money sucks. (laughs) First world problems. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. (laughs) So have you seen the? the other version of the shining that you were talking about because i didn't even know there was a second version yeah so it was a mini series it was a three-part series i think on abc is what i was reading um and it was written the screenplay was written by stephen king um and it was like basically him being like no this is how it should have been done um and then everyone's like oh this is crap um, I think it came out in 1998 is when it came out. Um, and they're like, compared to the Stanley Kubrick, The Shining, this is not. Like, the unfortunate part is I think that Stephen King's stories, to, to go back to a point that you made before, which I kind of disagree with, which is that Stephen King's stories are good for movies and TV shows because they're so visual. I think there's a lot of his stuff that just doesn't work. Um, or at least hasn't worked until maybe five years ago with the way that technology is caught up to visual stuff. And even then, we're still trying to dial it in. There's just been so much of his work that's hard to capture visually. Um, and and we're this is kind of going to go a little bit into my you know bottom of the of the show rant, but his stories are not always horror stories, right? Like they're always sold as horror, but they're not. They're sci-fi, they're dark fantasy, they're psychological. um, And so it's like, Ooh, we're going to go see the scary movie. And it's like, yeah, but most of like, there are parts that are scary, but it's not going to be a scary movie. And so then you get things like, you know, a three part mini series on ABC family or some shit that like is just terrible because it's not a scary movie. It's visually an interesting. Um, it is a it is watching a man go insane, and why? Because there's ghosts in in the hotel. But that's not the point of the movie or the story. So I I think it's it's interesting. I think over the course of his career, most movies that were made off of his work have been shit. Um, and now we're getting to a place where we can start to see stuff being done the right way or well, I think. So it's, I think he's, we're going to start seeing more stuff from King that he actually appreciates. (laughs) Yeah. He's been notoriously vocal about like 
slamming the movie adaptations of his work. Um, and it's kind of yeah. interesting to see like which ones he doesn't like and which ones he does. Because in the cases where he doesn't like it, he'll, I think one of his quotes was like, I literally gave you a roadmap for how to tell this story. <laughs> the roadmap yeah. was the book well, and you messed it up. And I think the only reason why The Shining, the Kubrick Shining works and it's so well received is because Kubrick didn't follow that roadmap. He went, okay, thanks for the foundation. I'll take it from here. <laughs> and King's like, that's not how this works. And Kubrick's like, I made 2001, bitch. It is how it works. <laughs> yeah. I told I Arthur C. Clarke to sit down and shut up, <laughs> motherfucker. And it was definitely the case where Kubrick was more famous at the time that he was making The Shining than Stephen King was, too. So if it were, like, nowadays, maybe it wouldn't have gone that way. So do you believe any of the stories of what Kubrick's secret plot of the secret theme of The Shining was? No. What what were the conspiracies? (laughs) You don't know any of them? No. Oh, man. There's so many out there. There's... Uh, one of them was, um, one of them is that the, uh, 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 not subtle, but like subplot. So this, this theme running through it is showing the, uh, American, um, frontiersmen, the, the manifest destiny and, um, genocide of the native American people. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you can look this up, there's a whole thing where they're like, this is he's showing the descent of humanity in the genocide of of the native people of the Americas. Um, Why so that? I don't know, because Stanley Kubrick's a mad genius. I have no idea. And then there's the other one where um, a lot of people think that Stanley Kubrick was a part of the faking of the moon landing. Right. They think that he was a part of that process to help us, you know, beat the Russians to the moon. And he helped produce the moon landing fake video. And that in The Shining, hold up, back up, and his wife hated him for it. So The Shining, he was showing, he was apologizing to his wife through The Shining for doing that. People have way too much time on their hands to think about movies. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. I know there's more. Those are the two that always stuck to, stuck with me. But there's there's those are the two themes that I've seen. Um, kind of uh, if you go back and watch, I mean, <laughs> Native Americans, you know, and moon landing totally makes sense. And The Shining. <laughs> I I hope you're being insanely sarcastic about that but you know no (laughs) that's why i watch it so i can see someone apologize for doing a fake moon landing and to (laughs) better understand the genocide of an entire people damn stanley kubrick was really trying to win some awards with that one Yeah. yeah um so then moving on to the the third one and this is one that has a more recent remake um that i want to talk about too um pet cemetery which is probably my favorite one of king's stories actually um and i very much agree with him that it's like the scariest 
Because um, that's something that Stephen King he's often referred to Pet Cemetery as his scariest story. And it's one that because of that, he almost didn't publish. Uh, so Carrie, he almost didn't publish because he didn't think it was good enough. Pet Cemetery was too good. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about it. Because so I, I saw, I back in the day, I saw Pet Cemetery 2 when I was a kid. Ugh. And then I recently watched the new version of Pet Cemetery when it was out in theaters. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Well, we will get to that. So the origin story for Pet Cemetery um, is, again, one of those things that only could happen to Stephen King. Uh, but while he was working at the University of Maine, his family rented a house in Orrington, which was uh, located on a busy highway. Speeding trucks killed so many animals on that stretch of road that the neighborhood kids started burying them. And it began with uh, small animals like birds and squirrels that they would uh, bury in a backyard sandbox. And then it grew into the full-fledged pet cemetery in the woods full of cats, dogs, even a goat. Uh, and complete with the misspelled sign reading Pet Cemetery spelled S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y. So S- Stephen King basically ripped this straight out of his, his experience living there, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and it even went um, deeper than that because, of course, uh, in the, the book, um, the daughter's cat gets hit by a truck. And that happened to King's daughter's cat, um, who was named, I think, Smucky. Uh, and so it joined the other animals in the cemetery. Smucky. Smucky. And he even oh. like ripped off some of his daughter's uh, dialogue for in the book because after Smucky or after Smucky died, one night he woke up because he heard um, his daughter shouting out in the garage. She was like breaking a bunch of bubble wrap and yelling like, God can't take my cat. Give him back. He's my cat, not God's. Oh, and damn. that dialogue, like, pretty much exactly appears in the book. Yeah, I mean, if that happened to you, wouldn't you put that in a terrifying book that you're writing? Yeah, I guess so. But, like, it's just unfair that this all happens to Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, and then King's youngest son, Owen, who was a toddler at the time, made a break for the highway one day. Um, wow. And unlike in the novel, uh, Owen did not make it to the road, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, he either tripped or King grabbed him. Uh, King doesn't remember which happened, but in either scenario, Owen was was safe, and uh, King was very traumatized by the incident. Couldn't get it out of his head for days, uh, yeah. and so he used the experience to write Pet Cemetery. And um, like I said, like he's called it his most terrifying book. He put it away in a drawer and never intended to publish it. Um, he only pulled it out of the drawer to settle a publishing contract dispute that he wanted out of. So, Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So I, did you know the deal with his publisher on that one? No, not at all. So when King first signed with Doubleday in 74 for Carrie, um, his contract had a clause that allowed the publisher to pay him $50,000 a year and then keep whatever excess came in and put it in like an investment fund and most authors don't make fifty thousand dollars a year so it seemed like a good deal to king at the time but then obviously he started making a shit ton of money and he was like yo why am i not getting all this extra cash um so he tried to get out of it before but of course doubleday was like nah (laughs) sorry bro you signed it so um his agent at the time in um, the late seventies, I think, suggested that King give Doubleday Pet Cemetery in uh, exchange for getting all of the money he was owed and getting out of the contract. So that's why he gave them Pet Cemetery. 
So he gave the so he gave them this story so they could pay him out of the excess fund. It was like you was know, settle up, he and I'll give you a novel. Anyway. Yeah. What was the point of having all that money? What were they gonna do with it? I and I'm not super clear on that because they put it in something called an author investment plan, where they were like investing it and getting interest on it. But oh. I'm not really sure, like, if they were supposed to use it for something specific or if they just got to keep the money forever. Yeah, no, they're they're making money off of his money. They basically yeah. put it off into a fund, and then every year it makes a certain amount back. And the more money he makes, the more money they make off of that investment. So, of course, they don't want to get rid of it because he's got probably millions of dollars in there. And every year, if it makes even 2% back... If, if if they have two million dollars in there, he's they're making what? That's like forty grand, fifty grand a year. A lot so of like, money. So and- yeah, that well, and that even makes sense too. Like if if they promise him fifty thousand dollars a year, and he's making money off of all of his books, and it's so, and they get to a point where the interest that it's curing off of that is paying for him, then. <laughs> They're paying him off of his own interest, and then all the money that he makes just goes towards that, and then the extra gets towards them. That is, it, unfortunately, evilly insane. Yeah. Or genius as, as a business pro- uh, practice. It's a good deal if you're the typical author, uh, but it's a terrible deal if you're a best-selling author like Stephen King. So... Yeah, he was not a fan of that contract, and I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did because otherwise we might not have Pet Cemetery. Sure. Um, and so you, I've never seen the original um, version of the movie Pet Cemetery. I know the newer one Stephen King liked, even though it um, strayed from the book. So in the the book, the son, the toddler, is the one who gets hit by the truck. In mm-hmm. the remake movie, it's the older daughter, and they even made the daughter older in the movie i think the actress who played her was 12 i'm not sure how old she was supposed to be but in the book she's only five um so they aged her up at least a little bit yeah i think it was one for acting purposes you yeah know, you get a better actor out of a 12 year old and two it was so that they can do that little you know kind of trick shot of oh you know what's gonna happen and then and the older daughter is someone that because she's older, you can, as as a person, you can kind of have a deeper connection with, right? Not that you can't have a connection with a five-year-old, but with a 12-year-old, it's... They've got more personality and... Yeah. Uh, and then they do that little, you know, one-two card trick, and then, oh, bam, it's the daughter that's dead. And it's like, oh, that hits so much harder. Yeah. I I really like the movie. Did you enjoy it? Um, yeah, as far as, like I had said, you know, like five years ago, we started to hit the stride, I think, with Stephen King stuff. And we got, uh, we got It Chapter One, we got, um, Pet Cemetery. I feel like there was a, even another one. Uh, we got the TV show, I think. Um, and then also Dr. Sleep came out recently. Dr. Sleep. Yeah. All of these movies, um, that are coming out, I, I've enjoyed I haven't seen the TV show yet. I've heard I need to watch it, but I've been enjoying them because they are, they are capable of keeping up with his imagination Mm -hmm. um, a lot more. And they're getting rid of some of the corny shit that they kept in because they're trying to use his 
work as a roadmap and follow it exactly. And it's like, no, you can take things and not have it in. Like I know with the pet cemetery, one of the big things, at least with the older movie is everyone talked about how corny it was. And they're like, Oh, the ground is sour. The ground is sour. And it's like in a book that might work because you can say it in your own voice. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the Stephen King voice, but in a movie, it's harder because you have a very specific person who's saying that and it can come off as very corny and almost humorous. Whereas with this one, the way that they did it is they're like, no, it's it's bad. The ground is is evil. It's bad. It's you know messed up. It's scary. It's and then like one time in all of those descriptions, he's like, the ground is sour, you know, and that and yeah. to me, like that hit so hard i was like that's so well done as far as taking something that's been corny in the past and turning it into like at the the nail in the coffin for how scary this is like while still like paying homage to the source material yeah where it's like your come the character is describing the ground and he has to use some weird terminology because how do you describe the land that brings things back with a demon inside of them, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I thought it was good. I think maybe because Rebecca and I, where we were, like we were starting to look at, you know, we wanted to have kids, but we didn't, but we weren't there yet. Um, I don't think we've gone back to watch it because as someone who wants kids, that's, literally the most terrifying thing you can watch and i can see why stephen king would say it's the scariest book he's ever written because it is directly directly affecting him as a father you know um so i totally get it i don't know if i could even now especially now that i'm expecting a kid i don't know (laughs) if i can watch it you know what i mean it's a hard one because i it's that thing you said, it's like every parent's worst nightmare. And then you're watching the family, the dad do what any parent probably would be tempted to do in that scenario. Even though as the audience, you're like, this never ends well. Like you're not supposed to play God and bring things back. Like, you know, it's going to end terribly, but you sympathize with him. Cause you're like, what else would you do in that situation? Yeah. If you had the power to, of course you would. Of course you would. Or you'd need to fucking move. Get the fuck out of there because you're only going to think about it. Yeah. That's all you're going to think about. And Pet Cemetery does not have an uplifting ending at all. Like Stephen King is a self-described uh, romantic in that usually he tries to have happy endings for his stories where, sure. you know, good wins over evil and all that stuff. But Pet Cemetery is so not that. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is good, though, because because it's earned. Right. It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, these people moved into this house and now they're all going to die just because they live there. It's like, no, this guy made the wrong choice. Right. He had the ability to not make the wrong choice, but he decided I'm going to make the wrong choice. And, and in then, return, he doomed his entire family. Exactly. And and that to me is an earned like that's a good story. Um and so, like, I get really tired of, of scary movies where it's like, everyone's going to die just because they're on screen. And we need <laughs> to make this gory and scary and sad. It's like, no, that's not what makes a good scary story. A good scary story is is the hope that they do the right thing and then they somehow just don't. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think now especially the trend is very much to have dark, twisted endings where it's like everyone's dead or everything's bleak at the end. Um, And it's interesting that Stephen King usually does not do that and it makes it more impactful in the one or two stories where he does. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah, absolutely. Um. So, yeah. So is now a good time for uh, your sermon on those before we move into a couple uh, Stephen King writing tips? Sure. I'm sure you've seen my, me, my growing list of my sermon. Uh, oh, I actually on, didn't. <laughs> now uh, I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go yeah. for it. Well, it, you know, I just going back over to the books, you know, that I had talked about. We're seeing we're seeing better movies coming out of his works because I think technology is there. I really liked um, Doctor Sleep. Uh, I apologize. The movie I'm drinking bubbly water, so now it's bubbling out of me. Um, <laughs> no, you like Doctor Sleep the movie? Yeah, I did. Oh, and I did too. But it was hard to watch in the in some of the scenes with the kids. I was like, this is very Stephen King esque, and I don't like it. In what way? Um, particularly the one where it's like a very long scene of the little boy dying. I was just like, this oh, is hard yeah. to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. And that's the, that's the part that makes it more scary. Um, but, uh, like I said, that even is not a scary movie. That is to me, not a scary story almost at all. It is a dark fantasy. It is a world that he has set up where, these fantastical things happen and then scary situations come out of that stuff. Right. Um, I think I, I think I started, I, I started reading some of his work and then I had also watched or listened to, um, the show ink to film and their coverage of, uh, of Dr. Sleep. And they did a really good job uh, of that. So if you're interested in learning more about it, I, I, highly recommend ink to film is one of my favorite shows they do such a good job uh they're not a sponsor of our show (laughs) but you should go check them out ink to film um but and so i i i i with dr sleep and then i read the institute and uh and then carrie and i started to realize he these stories that have always been like oh he's a a scary book writer scary story writer these are not scary stories. They are scary situations with within a universe that is absolutely fantasy. It is sci-fi, fantasy, dark, right? Like that is what I would term Stephen King at as this as at this point. He does have scary stories, right? Like like Pet Cemetery. Cujo is, you know, scary, but and there's nothing supernatural about it, if I remember correctly. It's just a scary rabby dog, right? I think so. Um, and I know that he does have scary stories out there, but ultimately he, he, I believe he has created a fantasy universe, which can, is just dark compared to Lord of the Rings, you know, Game of Thrones, um, Discworld, that sort of stuff. And so there's a whole storyline of books that I've seen at least that are all should all be collected together like Carrie, uh firestarter the institute uh or institution maybe is that is what it's called um the shining and the and dr sleep like these are all stories that deal with people with supernatural abilities um that kind of touch 
the um, supernatural, the 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 kind of scary, ghosty supernatural stuff. Um, so I I actually really like that as a theme, like kind of that that though the more sci-fi you get, the more dark and scary you get. It's very Lovecraftian, um, mm-hmm. and it, and he gets very specific about stories, which is cool. But the other thing that I'm starting to realize going through his stories is he has one major common theme with almost all of them. Almost all of them. I know that he writes things outside of this, but majority of his books are people that are stuck. Like almost every single story is this person is stuck in something, right? Cujo, straight up, lady and her her kid stuck in a car being attacked by a dog. Mm -hmm. Literally stuck. Gerald's game, a woman is literally stuck (laughs) handcuffed to her bed misery same deal (laughs) misery guy is stuck by a psychopath these are people that are stuck in physical locations and then you have like the shining guy is stuck in In a hotel in a hotel right and he's going nuts uh carrie is stuck in whatever she is being bullied the she's stuck being that person or being pushed down she is stuck in a relationship with her mom um, and the, I think the movie did a better job of showing that mental um, stuck than the book did. The book shows her going and straight up killing her mom by just like slowing down her heart and killing her softly and then moving on with her life, whatever's left of it. Um, <laughs> in the uh, in the movies, she's like, I can't live without my mom and I've killed her and now I have to kill myself because I, this is what I deserve. And so she, you know, like that's how that she is stuck in an abusive relationship. She's stuck in that mindset. Um, It, these kids are stuck either in town or they're stuck in the past. Both Mm -hmm. parts play into that, right? Like his theme through every single book that I have read or, or experienced in any way is person is stuck. And and so, like, everybody talks, oh, how does he write all these stories? It's like all he does is that person A is stuck in blank. <laughs> That's all he does. That's his whole thing, right? I Once you find that as an author, once you find that thing you can do over and over and over and over again, and nobody actually – it's like the fucking Mighty Morphin Power Rangers – all we do is come back and see them mighty morph and then fight a new bad guy. It's not like they're doing something different. They always turn into the mighty morph and power rangers. They always pull out their swords. They always go into their giant mechanical robot guy and they just, and the bad guy always gets beat up and then grows. It's just only a you bad could guy. make a comparison between Stephen King and the power rangers. And I'm so here for it. <laughs> <laughs> so like that to me is his formula. Sometimes he jumps out of that formula and does different things. Sometimes it's way more subtle, but ultimately that is his formula. That is the King formula. (sighs) I also think he's the anti Stephanie Myers, not because he hates Stephanie Myers, but because (laughs) I hated Stephanie Myers. And then I read something from her and I was, and then I learned about her and I was like, Oh, she's actually not as bad as everyone says she is. And people just hate her because she's successful, mm-hmm. right? And he's the opposite for me. I go, he's got to be the greatest uh, scary story writer of all time. 
But the more I read, the more I'm like, he's not that great. <laughs> and everybody thinks he's great. And so if you say he's not, then you're the asshole. Just like if I say I like Stephanie Meyer's writing, I'm the asshole. <laughs> and if I say I don't like Stephen King's writing. Now, I'm not saying Stephanie Meyer's is better than Stephen King. Do not get me wrong. As a writer, Stephen King is way better. <laughs> but I could read more Stephanie Meyer's than I could read Stephen King. Because Ooh, hot take. Because she doesn't do little girl titty boobs. Like she had she had ample, sorry for the word use, ample uh, ability to talk about teenage boobies. And yet we never had to talk about that at all when we talked about Twilight. Right? No. No, we yeah. didn't. And it's a romance. So And it's a romance points. written by a woman. <laughs> yeah. So I, that I I I just I don't, I'm not going to sit here and be like Stephen King's one of the greatest writers just because everybody else says it. From what I've seen, from what I've experienced and read, I think he's a great writer. I think he's one of the greatest writers. I just don't like the shit that he puts in his books. Teenage orgies, talking about little girls, ta- boys masturbating each other because they're bored. Like don't need don't need to read that. Don't need to read that. <laughs> my final my final and last take is uh, going back to what we were talking about with um, with Carrie and how he's writing um, representation for women. I, I, I identify with that quite a bit. As a writer, I've learned that I want to start having more representation in my writing for people now, um, people of color, uh, LGBTQ, all of that stuff where it, I am not those people, but I want to represent those people in my work, right? And so I think it's a really interesting story where it was him saying, I think I can do this. And then him going, I don't think I can do this well enough. And then having an ally come alongside and go, no, you can and you should. And to me, that is really important because I've needed that in my own work where I've reached out to people to say, I want to represent you, but I don't want to be the asshole who does it in the worst, most demeaning way because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So... Oh, bubbly water's coming up talking too much. <laughs> so, like, if you're an author, and, and this is my last big point, if you're an author and you want to have diversity and representation in your stories, it is, you should, 100%, you as an author should have that. Do not have the Friends cast as your character base. But... If you're going to do that, when you're go- you do that, you absolutely need to do research and have people who can call you out on your shit and be humble about what you're writing, right? Write the character, but when you get into specifics, you need to have people who can say this isn't or this is or it's kind of or whatever it is. Be willing to learn and be willing to open yourself up as a person so that you can love better and you can write better. Boom. Boom. Um, yeah, I mean, without getting too in the weeds on that point, like, and I don't know how Stephen King approached it either. I think anytime diversity is the goal of your story, you've already failed. Um, oh, yeah, I think, that's not what I'm trying to I say. I think that, I mean, if you've got a story and you want it to be about X person, like, your story should have the characters that fit it. 
Um, right. And I don't, I don't think even with Carrie, Stephen King's goal was not like, oh, I write about men usually. Now I'm going to try writing about a woman. It was like, I already have these two female sources of inspiration for this character. Well, but the whole thing, the whole thing started because he wanted to prove he could write from a woman's per- point of view. That's the reason he started writing it, but he already had the idea in his head. He just yeah. maybe wasn't going to write it until that point. Yeah. So it wasn't like he made Carrie a girl because somebody was like, oh, you can't write a girl. It was like Carrie was already an idea based on two women he knew. And he was yeah. like, okay, I'm finally going to make myself write this. And I've been holding back because I don't think I can write about women, which is like, yeah, maybe you can't. But, <laughs> but <laughs> no, he can, can with, though. I mean, his stories yeah. are still good, even if I personally do not find them relatable as a woman. It's like, whatever. You got to have chicks in your books every once in a while. There, uh, there are a lot of women that do identify with Carrie. There are a lot of women that really enjoy that story because they find that it has a lot of power for women in it. I I am not here to say they should or shouldn't because I'm not <laughs> a woman and I don't know. And personally, I think it's way too much stuff that he's putting in it. But if there's a woman out there that gets power from going, yeah, look at this chick who's been beat up and bullied her whole life, and then she murders an entire town because they pushed her too far, get your power from that. I, I don't care. Whatever you need to get through your day. Um, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. No, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the Stephanie Meyer thing. It's like, okay, maybe I don't find it relatable, but Twilight's not for me. There's lots of people out there who like it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, okay, and then the the last thing that I wanted to note, just because like this is a show about authors for authors, and we talk a lot about writing and craft. Um, Stephen yeah. King, you read On Writing, which is like one of the go-to books for prospective writers. And in it, uh, along with some biographical stuff, Stephen King imparts some of his writing advice. Um, so I wanted to see if uh, we could share some of our favorite tidbits from Stephen King's um, tips for writers. So I don't, do you want to go like back and forth on them or just kind of like word vomit some of these pieces of Um, advice? I think you're going to have more than I am. I kind of word vomited on the last episode about what I took away from that. Um, So if you haven't listened to that episode, if you want to hear me talk about how monogamous I am, um, (laughs) go listen to that episode and you'll hear what I'm talking about. It keeps getting more and more suspicious, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) So um, these are all things that I really um, either appreciate and try to work into my own writing that Stephen King has talked about or things that I aspire to to incorporate. So one of his tips that I really um, resonate with is Stephen King will always say, don't over describe. Um, And this is something that I run into as a reader all the time. It's like authors love to go into paragraph upon paragraph of like overly flowery scene description and stuff like that. And it almost always slows the plot down for me and takes me out of the story. And um, that's one tip where I'm like, yep, I am in total agreement with Stephen King. (laughs) That being said, I have... it, do you have a specific book or something? Oh Are my you talking Tolkien? Are you like- Yeah, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. 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 We do not need 12 pages about like the history of the Shire before we've even gotten into the plot. Yeah. No, I get it. I totally <laughs> do. And I I think that's something that comes from his short story um sci-fi writing. Very, it's just get like, to the point. Get to the point. That's where the story is. I like um <clears throat> 
one of the things that I know is <clears throat> one of the things that he talked about was how a story and a writer are like a paleontologist or a geologist. Um, and you're excavating the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you have different tools that you use to do that. And at no point are you just bam, there's the story. You have to like find different parts and find pieces and then try to put them together. That was something that really stuck with me as I continue my writing where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm telling the story, but I'm also exploring the story at the same time, you know, with like dinosaur bones, you're putting the bones together. You're the one that decides where they go, but you can put them in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. You can mess it up. So that was, that was one of the things that I liked. That's interesting. Um, And then another one that maybe comes up a lot in my particular line of work, uh, journalism, uh, but it has to do with adverbs and dialogue. So adverbs is like anything basically where you add L-Y at the end to describe how you're doing an action. So like she ran quickly, he walked slowly. Adverbs are the slowly and the quickly. Um, And King is a staunch adversary of adverbs. He's like very anti-adverb because usually it's stronger if you use a stronger verb in the first place. So like she sprinted or he like dragged his feet or something like that. Um, So that's one of the things that I look out for. And then he also talks a lot about dialogue and adverbs. It's like he, he hates it when writers say like she shouted furiously or he pleaded helplessly, stuff like that. He's like, you're always weakening it. And uh, one of his like most famous tips around dialogue is you know nine out of ten times just saying she said is the best tag for dialogue and that's something that people struggle with like when i am editing news stories i'm constantly like telling people to cut the he exclaimed like nobody when you're talking says i exclaimed at him that like blah 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 blah. so it's like you always want to go with the most natural choice and even though people maybe want to whip out thesaurus.com to make their writing more interesting it just like takes you out of the the dialogue that's happening so usually like story be the story don't let the words be the story yeah, and let your dialogue tell you how it's being said. Like, if you've written a good piece of dialogue, you should be able, the reader should be able to figure out what the tone is. It is interesting that it takes more work to write simply. Yeah, it does. You the, know what I mean? The quote um, that he had in on writing, I think, that I, I found particularly um, poignant, but also funny. He was, uh, he said, quote, all I ask is that you do as well as you can. And remember that while to write adverbs is human, to write he said or she said is divine. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King is is uh, sharing some divine wisdom with y'all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that adverbs have, have a place. I do. Oh, um, yeah. And I, I, you know, it's not everybody is Stephen King. Not everybody is uh, Ernest Hemingway. Sometimes you got to have a little bit of fluff and pack <laughs> it in there to make the story more interesting a little bit. I think that there are people who write in a specific way with a voice that makes reading just as fun as the story. Like what comes to my mind is like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
Like doesn't use adverbs that, on dialogue though. The way that I don't know. I I'm no no he doesn't. That, that was one of the examples that was put forth. It's like Douglas Adams does not fuck around with adverbs. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. Interesting. See, so maybe I'm just proving his point even more. But yeah, I I I'm gonna have to pay more attention to that as I go forward at, at this point. Like, if there's an author that I really like that I resonate with, uh, I need to go look at Frank Herbert. I bet he doesn't. He seems like the straight shooter kind of guy. Maybe I'm sure he uh, he does a lot of exposition though, so maybe he breaks oh, that he other sh- rule. He does a shit ton of exposition. Yeah, <laughs> he does not follow the next Stephen King rule that I like, which is kill your darlings. And this is like an oft repeated phrase by many writers, but basically it's like don't let yourself get too attached to everything that you've written. You have to have the the distance to be able to be like, you know what, this 13 page scene does not add anything to my story. I love it so much, but I got to kill it. <laughs> yeah. And which is hard. Uh, it's very hard. Um, I learned that lesson after I sent you my, um, my fantasy book that I had been working on. And uh, before I even sent you that, I would go through it and I would cut out entire chapters i cut out chapters and paragraphs pages sentences all of that um and at you know it was hard but it was like i after reading on writing i realized how how much of this stuff i was doing and how much i needed to change that um and then having someone alongside who goes um yeah also you need to put commas instead of periods quotations <laughs> You dumb, 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 Stephen dumb. King wouldn't be mad about your lack of commas, though, because like he's always said, it doesn't matter if you write pretty, like the story is way more important. So sure. I think yeah. Stephen King would be on your side with in that one. Editors I, are for commas. I think legitimately, and I'm not trying to be an asshole, an egotistical asshole, but I think if Stephen King had read my work from like five years ago, he'd be like, yeah, you need to, you, you, I don't know if you should do this, but... But if you read my work today, I think that Stephen King would like my work now. I really oh, wow, that was very high praise. Not that, not that I'm <laughs> saying I'm as good as Stephen King. I'm not saying I'm a great writer. I'm just saying Stephen King wouldn't hate me if he read my work. Oh, okay. I feel like I feel like that's a humble way to say I'm okay with my writing. I feel okay. like I'm allowed to uh, say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last two. Um, bits from Stephen King's writing advice that I uh, aspire to more than have already implemented um, is don't wait for the muse. So yeah. Stephen King is like very, he has a a writing like schedule. He does it every single day, usually from 730 to noon is what he said is like, he's always going to be at the typewriter with no distractions, no, you know, on the internet, any of that stuff. Um, yeah. And cause he's basically he goes, like, you he know, he goes into his writing room and plays rock music and yeah. doesn't, doesn't let anybody open the door. So he's basically saying like, you know what? The muse isn't always going to be there when you want it to be. So right. it's basically like creating a space, being there every single day diligently. And then eventually the muse will find you. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and what he puts into what he puts into practice is his fun- fundamentals and his theme of they're stuck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's where we see a lot of that. He's like, stuck oh, at his computer trying to write it. Yeah, 
they're stuck. They're going to figure their stuff out while they're stuck. Yeah. And then that leads into the the final thing that I really resonated, which uh, is the scariest moment is always just before you start. Yeah. After that, things can only get better. So to all of the writers out there who are thinking of a story idea, they've got like the, the world building going on in their head, but are too afraid to write the first sentence. Just do just it. Just do it. Just fucking do it, dude. It's um, probably going to suck. You'll probably have to kill it in edits, but um, then at least you'll have a story that's done. that's what editing is for. And that's another thing that he talks about that I really liked is his whole, um, you write with the door closed and you edit with the door open, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if someone wants to give you their advice on it, if someone wants to help you, like, take that advice when you're editing because it's going to help you. And and then the other big one that I really liked was, and this is one that I've been implementing for a while since reading this uh, book, is when you write a story and you finish it, air quotes, put it away and then go work on something else. Go on vacation, go play, go do something for months, three months if you need to, six months if you have to. Um, just let it sit and then pull it out of the drawer and take a red marker to it. Because you're going to be so much more apt to come back. And don't think about it for those months. Just let it sit. Go. If you need to work on another story, do that. Um, and so people, he's he says, you know, people are asking, how do you turn out all these stories so fast? He's like, because they've been cooking for years, right? Like I've had a story that I've written and then I let it sit and then I work on another story and then I let it sit and then I work on a third one. And then by the time I'm done with that third, maybe that first one's ready to go. I pull it out, start editing. And at that point I'm starting to think of a fourth book. And so I'll start on that fourth book and then I'll start editing book number two. And like, and so he's got this constant rotation of stories that he will work on. Um, and I absolutely love that workflow. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the things that I resonate most with out of his workflow is is having that constant flow of put it away, work on another story. Because, Hannah, you know I've got plenty of stories that I can just move on to. Um, and and I know – I think he even mentions another author, and I don't remember who it is, but it's a, it's a famous one who would – he would type out his story – and then once he got to the end, he'd pull it out, put it in a box, throw it in the shelf, put in the next piece of paper, and start on the next book. Wow. Like, there was – he would write for three hours every single day. And if he finished a book and he's at an hour and a half, he still has an hour and a half to write. So he's going to start writing his next book. Like, that is the mentality that Stephen King has that that writers who make this their career, that's the mentality that they have. Of course, they're also able to fund that lifestyle. <laughs> so it's kind of hard for us uh, workers of everyday jobs to go, uh, yeah, fuck off wife and child. I have to write for three hours no matter what, even though well, I just got home. To his credit, I mean, he was doing that for years and years while he was also working one and a half jobs. Yeah, I get. I don't know how much he was doing that specific thing, but yeah, he was he wasn't doing the full fledged novels at that point, yeah. but with the short stories, yeah, he was still doing like dozens which he, and dozens, which was justified because he was making a little bit of money doing it too. So it wasn't yeah. like 
he was like, babe, i got to go work on my novel so that I can get published <laughs> and then one day make a million dollars. It was like, babe, I need you to watch the kids so I can make like 300 bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's what he yeah, was Yeah, once he for. got to the regular contributor part, yeah. Yeah. So. So that's Stephen King. I think we started out a little slow and then, man, we really uh, ramped up there with Stephen King. <laughs> At least I did. In terms of liking him or In terms of passion? what I have to say about what I have to say about him. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to, to talk about? I don't think I mean, as with most of our authors, I now like Stephen King more than when I, you know, didn't know anything about his life. So I like I am him exactly the same. You like him exactly the same? Yep. Yeah. Oh. It's never I'm that sorry. way for me. I, I'm really sorry. I just, and maybe I'm just a prude. Maybe I am. And I used to be more prudish. And when I read it, I, I, I was more prudish than I am now. But the moment he described his main character shoving a gun up a woman's vagina and shooting her, I was like, I don't care about Wait, which writing. one was that in? That's the Gunslinger. That's the first in the Dark Tower series. And oh. it's like chapter three. And I did. I, I put the book down. I've never read the Dark T- Tower series ever again, which I know everybody's like, it's the greatest Stephen King stories. You gotta read them. There's interconnected. And there's it is in it at all. And carrying all the characters. He has Stephen King shows up in it. And I was like, that's great. The second he shoved a gun barrel up a woman's woohoo and shot her. Sorry, done. That's the end of that story for me. I don't think I'll read that one, maybe. Not for that reason, <laughs> but, you know, I think I, I can we're, pass. We're probably going to get a lot of hate, and I'll probably get a lot of people who are like, you got to read it, though, dude. <laughs> They'll sound just like that. Like, you'll They'll hear the slobber like coming out across the oh keyboard. No, but I think, do you not like Stephen King more as a person? That's what I mean. Because, like, in the last episode, you really connected with, like, that joy that he felt when he could tell his wife that, you know, I made $200,000. Yeah. Yeah, I think that he's a great guy. I really do. I think he's he's earned his place as as a great um, philanthropist. 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 Thank you. I feel like you you combine philanthropist with philanderer, Philanderer. which he's not. Yeah, which he's not because he's staunchly monogamous, like me. After he dies, we're gonna find out that he has like twelve love children. Yeah, of course we are. Um, Philanthropist, Um, and 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 he does want to help people write when he can, and he's he's open to a lot of those conversations. Um, and it's just his right. It's just what he puts into his books and, and he's unapologetic about it. And that's fine. I'm not even mad at him for it. I'm just going, not my cup of tea. You know what I mean? Like if that's what he wants to write, great, do it. I'm not going to say you shouldn't. I'm just going to say, I'm probably not going to read your dark tower trilogy. All right. Is that all we have to say? No, yeah, no, I've got more, obviously, but we need to end the show because I've we got gotta end clients the show. coming in. So, <laughs> Tyler, uh, oh, our next episode is going to be the Halloween special. 
Yeah. <gasps> I'm so excited. You guys don't have to listen to me talk for like an hour and a half while listening to our show. It's going to be great. <laughs> We've gotten so many stories and it's really good. Like it's, I'm really excited for these stories. Really well done stories too. Oh, I'm so excited. I've, I've refrained from reading any of the ones that were not from me or my direct associates. So, <laughs> so it's nice. yeah, that's, yeah. you know, AKA uh, my boyfriend and family. So yeah, it's going to be a very Lambert Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. My parents, they were both like, you totally don't have to put this in your show. And I was like, wait, but this is better than mine. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read yours yet. Oh, wait, no, I did. No, you yeah, read I mine. Read you haven't Towns. read my parents. I read yours. Yours was so good. And you're not, you're not even close to right. Not that your parents didn't write a good book. They <laughs> both wrote good stories, but yours was really good. So oh, don't well, thank take you. credit away from yourself. Uh, but yeah, so that's our teaser for the next episode. It's going to be a big deal, guys. Can't wait. Um, and then in the meantime, I mean, it's too late to send submissions to us for Halloween at this point. You can always send other fiction uh, that we might read in later shows to lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. But Tyler, where, where else can people connect with us? Uh, you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, facebook.com slash lewisandlovecraft or Instagram at lewisandlovecraft. You can go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com. Um, and yeah, yeah, like Hannah said, you can send in stories for, to submit for us to read on other episodes. I've already talked to a few people that submitted for Halloween about saving their stories for other stuff. So um, there's a lot uh, of, of good stories coming in, and we want to read them on our show regularly. If you're an indie author and you want to kind of get your work out there a little bit, a little bit noticed, please send in your work to us. We want to help you out. And as always, we want to give our thanks to Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. You can listen to all of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson. That's B as in boy, A-S-S-E-N. Make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to it. If it's on Apple, on Spotify, any pod catching application, you can subscribe and make sure you catch all of our deep dives and our correspondence episodes. And rate and review us on any platforms that allow it, especially um, Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Those are two of the big ones. Yep. And tell a friend, especially with these episodes and and the Halloween episode coming up. Now is the time to share us with your friends, uh, especially for the spooky season. You can kind of give them the gift of spooky stories. Also, if you have, if you're a newer listener and haven't listened to last um, October's Halloween special, you should definitely give it a, le- a listen because we had a lot of great stories then too. Um, and I know we have a lot of return authors for this one, so um, that I, I feel like I want to re-listen to the other one too because I've seen some of the names pop up and I'm like, I feel like they were on our last show and I really liked their work. Like, what was that story? So yeah, absolutely. I highly recommend listening to our last. We have two Halloween episodes and a sci-fi episode so if you're in the mood just to hear some flash fiction those are the ones to go check out for sure and uh and then our next episode will be the next big one the the flash fiction so you'll have plenty of stories coming and with that we'll we'll talk to you later ghoul gang bye bye good luck